Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattanooga. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Roy Kiesling, who will explore EMDR from an attachment-based perspective. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am very excited to have with us today Roy Kiesling, who is a EMDR trainer and consultant and has presented many times at Emdria, and he has come to Chaddock multiple times to offer training. Um, I have found him to be an exceptional um, EMDR teacher and also someone who really is able to integrate attachment-oriented uh, things within the whole overall schema of EMDR. So welcome, Roy. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, fun to be here, and it's always exciting to be asked questions that challenges one's knowledge and, and, and one's, one's thought process. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so could you just share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got involved in EMDR? Well, the, it's, it's a rather long background. I started becoming a, as a Marine pilot. And then years as a tennis pro, and then finally a social worker, and was uh, introduced in 1995 to EMDR, and got involved more in the training uh, aspect of it in 1997 when I started working with Francine Shapiro's training organization, first as a coach or facilitator, and then 2001 became a trainer for the humanitarian programs. In 2005 or six became a trainer for her. Uh, training institute, and then in 2013, kind of formed my own kind of training organization, which I've been uh, deeply involved with, and which brought me to Chaddock a number of times um, to kind of talk about EMDR in an integrative way. It's kind of evolved to um, a more sophisticated, elegant, interpersonal way of doing EMDR in contrast to protocols and procedures. Um, that seems to be uh, also another another track in the EMDR community. So that's my background. Great, great. Yes, thank you. So before we uh, move into some of the attachment related topics here that we want to talk about, since you've been around EMDR for a long time, you do a lot of training, I just wanted to ask you a general uh, EMDR question. And that is, you know, I'm hearing, you know, people are now using something called EMI and EFT, which to me means the couples thing by Susan Johnson, but these people are talking about something different with tapping and such. And, you know, that I'm hearing um, noise out there. Oh, this is better than EMDR. This is gentler than EMDR. And knowing the tremendous amount of research that EMDR has, I well, I'm finding myself a little skeptical, um, and I I would like to just hear if you have any thoughts about that, and if, oh, yeah, you, yeah. if, you, if you've been hearing those rumblings out there too. Oh well, I think they've they've been around a long time, and it really dates back to the 1980s, 
the, the whole process of uh, started with trying to treat PTSD. Uh, it dates back to the 1980s with particularly Vietnam veterans. And a lot of clinicians were struggling with how, how to uh, treat that and talk therapies weren't working. So there was a growth and a lot of innovative approaches. Uh, um, prolonged exposure came about, hypnosis came about. Um, there was eye movement uh, therapies and eye movement were already kind of in place through NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, used eye movements and used eye movements into quadrants to access different thought processes. And it was especially at that time used for sales, uh, kind of reading a person's thoughts by where they looked. Um, and that really about that time, you had EMDR developed and you actually had EMDR because you mentioned eye movement integration. And they both kind of came out of the same uh, fertile ground of NLP. Uh, using eye movements and eye movement integration used more of a diagonal up into quadrants, accessing whatever part of the memory was most dominant. If a somatic would go into a certain area, if it was visual, they would move into a certain area. I think what Francine did was do research. It was her uh, it was her dissertation in her PhD program, and she published that in the Journal of Traumatic Research, I think, in 1989. And I think that really kind of laid the foundation for a lot of people becoming interested in, in EMDR. And as you said, there's a lot of research out there. And I think you have to give Francine really a lot of credit for saying, we have to do research. And almost any time you ever heard Francine, it was like research, research, research to get this to be an efficacious treatment. Uh, and so I think that the weight of EMDR has been around the research and around that quality. I think the spin-offs, uh, eye movement integration is probably done with slower eye movements. It's not done necessarily working through traumatic experiences as aggressively as, as EMDR does. Um, I think uh, also in the early 1990s, there was a publication from the Psychology Networker that said the power therapies of the 90s or 2000s or the 21st century, and EMDR was one of those, and then thought field therapy was another that was developed or promoted by Callahan, who used the tapping and different algorithms. Uh, and that was really the foundation for the, what's now referred to as EFT, I'm emotional freedom techniques, I think is what they use, which has to do with tapping along meridian points to kind of resolve and soothe and calm. And quite honestly, a lot of EMDR clinicians have taken both, I have, um, particularly after you wave your fingers in front of somebody's face and they get better. It's like, well, we're receptive just about anything now. And so tapping, why not? Let's see if it works. And it's really good for calming and soothing. I think it's uh, the tapping algorithms are good for, for, like I said, calming anxieties down. My experiences have been they're not necessarily as thorough as an EMDR treatment. You know, EMDR kind of stresses trait change where we really change the whole neural network system Whereas I think the tappings are more of a soothing, calming strategy, uh, although they're evolving too. And I think that people are always looking for um, alternatives. One of the things about EMDR I mentioned a moment ago is it's very aggressive. Uh, if, it's, if it's done in an open-ended sort of way, um, with, which I refer to as unrestricted processing, where you just let whatever is in the neural network come up. Um, we happen to teach kind of a titrated way so that you don't have to experience that intense uh, emotional activation if it isn't appropriate. So I think we're all looking for ways to treat. We're looking for ways to treat clients that are, are user-friendly. Uh, I just got off the call a moment ago 
with somebody talked about having a really successful EMDR treatment session. The client came back and said, yeah, that really worked and I'll never do that again because it was too intense. So I think we don't want to scare people away either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that whole dynamic, I think that's where you have some of these spinoffs that kind of bring up, well, we're gentler than EMDR, we're this than EMDR. And I think it dates back to kind of the, the original uh, formulation of EMDR and its protocols and procedures, which uh, can be aggressive and, and everything's kind of growing and changing. So I think you're out there. Um, and some of them give credit to EMDR as helping contribute to their development, others don't. Um, and I think they're all tools. They're all tools for the clinician to use uh, in, different, in different ways. I don't think there's an end all for any particular treatment process. It's just is used to a greater or lesser degree with each and every client. Yes, yes. Well, um, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, whenever we're going to do research, that requires a manual and a very specific protocol. Um, yeah. and, and so, I mean, I think that, you know, if that was what Francine was trying to focus on, it had to be that way. One of Absolutely. The, yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that I've really appreciated appreciated about you as a trainer, among many things, is you somehow find this way to follow the manual but still be flexible. And you mentioned doing the work in an interpersonal way. Um, so let's start just a little bit right there because obviously we're, we're looking at how to look at attachment injuries um, through the lens of EMGR, it would be doing it in, a, in an interpersonal way. So why don't you just share what that means to you? Yeah, well, before I do that, as a frame of reference, I mentioned flying, and I think in flying, there's two different ways to fly. You've got the commercial pilot who does everything by the protocol, and they do it exactly the same way every time. And then you have the acrobatic or combat pilot who is thinking very three-dimensionally. So I think there's two different tracks in the EMDR, and, and obviously from being a pilot, I'm gonna be more the three-dimensional aspect of that, which allows us to move beyond just doing protocols and procedures. And we, are, we have such an intimate relationship with our client because we're not in our left brains talking so much. There's very, once we set up the experiences, uh, as you know, processing is more of just go with that and we let your brain kind of do the work doesn't mean that we're sitting there taking notes, not paying attention. We're really very close and very personally involved. So there is a very close interpersonal relationship, which, you know, I've come over the years to realize is a really significant part of therapy. And listening to Dan Siegel's work uh, and Alan Shore's work about right brain psychotherapy, they really are pointing out the mirroring neurons, the attachment that is occurring between an infant and the primary caregivers. And in many respects, I see EMDR at this interpersonal level of being just that. We're, we're very close. Uh, we're very connected with our client. I've even gone to the extent of suggesting clinicians uh, process with their left hand, uh, which allows you to look to your left, which activates your right brain. Mm-hmm. And according to Alan Shore, most of, and, and Dan Siegel as well, most of the information we read nonverbally comes from our right brain to right brain connection. 
Mm-hmm. So the fact that my part, my client is sitting off to the left allows both of our right brains to be really connected as well as our heart brains. Right. Um, it really enhances that whole interpersonal dynamic uh, that's so critical. And most, many of our clients, particularly those that have complex presentations, have missed that interpersonal attachment aspect that really is the nonverbal piece. And I think mm-hmm. that's where EMDR is so effective. We don't have to spend so much time in our left brain. Um, we're really in that position of unconditional acceptance. We don't challenge what the client says. We just say, okay, go with that. And we trust that you can be authentic. And we encourage you to just say whatever comes up. Uh, all of which I think are doing wonders for the subtle nonverbal attachment mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. that uh, the person hears, they know we're being, we're, they're being heard, we're tuning to them and how we help them understand what their dynamics or their, their problems are. Um, so it really is kind of an interpersonal approach just from the first moment we meet. Yes, yes, yeah. And um, bringing that presence into the EMDR session, you know, and, e- you know, even being aware of that positioning that you described and such, um, I think that that all comes together to increase the impact of of what we're doing. Sometimes I feel like, the, the movements and the processing is just like the, the smallest part of it. Sometimes, even though, you know, when you hear about the technique, you know, you might think that's the, that's the big thing, you know, but there's so many other pieces, isn't there? Uh, oh, absolutely. I think starting with how we conceptualize what's happening and how we share with the client, how this is all neurological, uh, dating back often to infancy and implicit memory. And then, and then uh, taking the time to help them put language to the feelings and emotions they have, and that's very validating and affirming to them. Uh, and then, yeah, even to that close interpersonal part about I'm watching you and I'm reading your, your facial expressions and your body language that tells me even when to pause and ask what's happening. So yeah. it really is from the yeah. beginning, just helping that client feel validated and heard. Yes, that and that, 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 level, that level of attunement you're describing. Right. I see you. Right. I notice what's happening, and I respond to that. Yeah, yeah. and so much of that is, uh, is critical to attachment. Yes. You know, we wanna, like, like Siegel says, we validate, we confirm and validate our differences, and we, we celebrate our connections. And I think we're doing that as a therapist. And particularly what's so nice about EMDR is, once we're in the treatment, the actual treatment fact factor, we aren't in our left brain thinking about how to be brilliant, what to say, or how to direct you, nor are you in your left brain trying to think about what to say so that I'll respond to you. It's sort of like pure, just being authentic. Uh, and I think that's why the, 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 the eye movements or tapping or whichever creates a really uh, catalyst for a fertile change because of everything we've done before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So um, I know one of the things that came up in uh, the training that we've done at Chadock uh, over the years, um, when you're looking at complex trauma, developmental trauma, um, multiple attachment disruptions with a lot of the kids that we work with, it has come up, well, what if there is no safe place? You know, we, we, we that's kind of our starting point um, in some ways. And um, I'd like listeners to hear any thoughts that you have about that. <laughs> uh, well, sure. I think that's one of the common problems. Um, I think when we think of EMDR, 
we always have that safe place as one of those goals. In that respect, I think what we're trying to help the client know is how to, how to manage affect. When we stir something up, how do we shut it down? For some people, going to a safe place like the beach or something allows you to just leave. But for others, like you say, then maybe my core belief is it's not safe to feel safe. Uh, right. And so it really is going to be triggering to even let my guard down. So therefore, sometimes containers, you know, what a contain aspects of the memories that are intrusive would be helpful. Uh, and those can be concrete envelopes and cue cards. But one of the other exercises that I found really valuable is securing a space, which is entirely different than a safe place. So if I were having somebody in my office that didn't, didn't feel safe, I wouldn't use the word, but I, but I might say, well, how secure do you feel right now sitting in this office, zero to 10? And let's say they say a six. Then I'm going to talk to them about how they went about securing their space in this office and in the relationship with me to get them to feel at a six. Mm. And we'll fan that. We'll talk about behaviors, how you text, you know, you sat with your back to the, you know, facing the wall with the, you're, you're facing the door. You have the exit right there. I'm not in between you. You've tested out my questions and how I responded. So you've done a lot to secure your environment. And then once I build that, then a really great thing is to let, let's expand that to see how you could secure another space. Let's say if you had this skill, how secure would you have felt just sitting out in the waiting room? And how could you have secured your space? How secure would you be um, in the cafeteria? How secure would you be in the common room? Uh, using your your facility, so to speak, and you can teach people to to have a security that they can take with them. You know, a common metaphor is soldiers when they travel, they secure the, the perimeter every night, and they they guard that area, and then they can take that someplace else. So it really gives a person control and the ability to recognize degrees of security, uh, as opposed to the thought of letting my guard down. So it's one of the more recent interventions I've added into our training for especially those complex clients who just cannot feel safe letting their guard down. Uh, so we don't. Let's, let's keep your guard up, but realize degrees of that. Some places, absolutely, you have to be on 100% guard because it isn't secure, but other places, maybe you can be at a six or a seven uh, and have a variable. So it gives that person a sense of control, uh, which is really important and knowing what they can do now and also any place they go they have these skills because we're teaching them skills about securing where you are so it's a little different shift from the safe place um that is yeah. the most not dominant in emdr yeah and I, I i'm realizing maybe we should have even said what that is for people who aren't familiar with emdr um, you want to just say what what that is and then we can jump back to to what you were explaining yeah, well, uh, I think Shapiro said we want to have a safe grounding anytime you do any type of affect work or uh, activate a lot of emotions. And if you want to stop, we can shut it down and we can take you away from whatever you were you imagining and take you someplace else. So that's typically a real or imagined safe place for adults. I think kids, a lot of times their safe place is diagnostic. It's up in the sky. It's a fort with cannons all around it. Uh, certainly kids can invent those things and have some degree of safety, but adults have a little bit more of a problem. But the primary purpose, I think, again, is if we stir something up in, in our processing and you don't want to do it anymore, how do I ground you? How do we put that away? 
uh, how do we know, help you know that you're in a place that you're, it's over, it's, you're, you're safe. Whether that means going to the beach or whether it means putting a cue card in an envelope or whether it just means a grounding exercise, a breathing exercise or muscle relaxation exercise, it's just shutting it down. So the, the common strategy is to have something, some mindfulness exercise that will stop whatever we are doing and make sure you know that's over, we're here now. Right. So that, that's the whole structure. And, and Shapiro started with the safe place, and that was something that she obviously put together for a PTSD symptom when you're having flashback to be able to say, no, I, it's not there, I'm someplace else. As I think EMDR has become more involved in psychotherapy, we have more and more complex clients. We don't have single traumas anymore. We have, like you say, pervasive developmental traumas. So the, the evolution of how to secure and help the client feel secure has kind of expanded from the original. Yeah, and I guess as, as a TheraPlay therapist, um, what I'm thinking about what you said is, you know, TheraPlay is all about the here and now present experience. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to, you know, how, what safety in this moment can be created rather than trying to reflect on a place someone was safe before. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. quite, quite so, and even, yeah, even with safe places, I always encourage people to do something now. I don't want you to go back to when you were sitting in your grandma's lap feeling safe when you were five. Yes. Because typically when we're processing those old memories, we want you to be back as the present person in your present age right. to access something that you can do presently. So, yeah, your TheraPlay is perfect for that, too. It's right now. Right. It's not it's not that because we're trying to let that memory go. Right. Bring you back to the present. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about the the quote, and it may have been Bessel van der Kolk. Um, I'm not sure, but the quote about trauma is not being stuck in the past. It's not being able to be in the present. I think that's just yeah. powerful in terms of what you're talking about here. Um, right. Yeah. So. Here's something I have thought about a lot. If we look at Bowlby's concept of an internal working model and, um, you know, something formed very early on through our caregiver relationships that creates a template for future relationships and how we anticipate those will go and how the world will be, how we'll experience it, how, how we experience ourselves in the world. So do you think internal working model is uh, similar to a cognition and, and sometimes a negative cognition? Well, I think that internal working model is similar to neural network activation that you could overlay with information processing that you have formulated this, this neural network that has emotions associated with it and the emotions that get activated really drive your perceptions and attitudes and behaviors, good or, or negative, either way. You yes. see yourself in some respects, and that's really driven by that emotional component. That is being stored in implicit memory that starts in utero and then certainly is dominant throughout the throughout our lives, but very much. So I think it's language that is different language to mean the same thing. Uh, so from a neurological perspective, you can say, I see myself as a child because I project onto somebody a parental dynamic that that goes back. And when we ask our clients, you know, when your boss criticized you, how do you feel? I feel like this little kid, I, like I was being scolded. Well, you probably were. So I think it, it really is language a little bit different. I think Shapiro would 
refer to it as information processing in our EMDR approach, the adaptive model of updating, uh, and then what we often talk about are memory networks that are isolated because they're at a different frequency, they have a different emotional component, and they can't integrate in and link with adaptive ones. Uh, and that becomes our, our focus of therapy. How do we get this system that's emotionally charged from probably past experiences to really integrate into this adaptive system that we've learned is now? And I think that's yeah. the whole goal of therapy, regardless of the modality. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts as well as previous episodes too. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com. We hope you join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.